Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Please bow your heads with me a prayer. Father, we thank you for your word that you've given us this morning, these amazing miracles that Jesus has done. Lord, I just pray that it would increase our trust and our faith in you and in your son, Jesus. We say these things and pray these things in his name. Amen. You may be seated. What is trust? Well, if you Google it, it says that trust is the firm belief in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of someone or something. Trust is the glue that holds our society, our culture, even really the entire human race together. Think about this. Anytime, if you've ever gotten onto an airplane, you've exhibited a significant amount of trust, right? You're trusting that the pilots know what they're doing. You're trusting that the manufacturer made an airworthy aircraft. You're trusting that the air traffic control will direct you around thunderstorms and keep you clear of other air traffic. Trust can also be lost very, very quickly. For those that follow the financial news, you may have heard recently about the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Their management team made some poor risk management decisions. Um, They risked becoming insolvent, and when depositors found out that their deposits were potentially at risk, for just evaporating and going away should the bank fail, there was an old-fashioned run on the bank. Except this time, people didn't show up at the bank. It was very 21st century. They pulled out their phones and moved their money from Silicon Valley Bank to another bank. But there was a significant loss of trust in Silicon Valley Bank and, and their management team. Why don't we trust more? I mean, trust really is hard. How often... Has our trust been broken by our loved ones, by our leaders at work and in the government and elsewhere? Or how often have we felt manipulated or used by somebody who said, trust me, and we thought that they had our best interest in mind, when in reality, they just really wanted to get something out of us? What about our children and friends? Trust is hard to gain, and it's easy to lose. It's fragile, yet essential. Without it, things fall apart. Now, the glue of the kingdom, we're here in this Kingdom Life series, the glue of the kingdom is trust. It's trust between each other, but more importantly and foundationally and, and, and ultimately, that trust is in the Lord Jesus because there is no one more trustworthy than him. In today's passage, we we come to Jesus feeding the 5,000. This is the only miracle that all four Gospels record. It's the only miracle that they all record. And then we see Jesus walk on the water. Finally, Jesus heals people really with just sort of the, the, the aura and the leftover power emanating out of his robe. They just touch it and they're healed. So my main idea for you, we're going to have the entire, all of chapter 14. We won't be able to cover with this much scripture, really go verse by verse. But 
I want to try to draw out some big ideas for you this morning. And my main idea for you this morning is this. Jesus' miracles prove that he is God. And they tell us that he is worthy of our complete trust. And so what? So get out of the boat and trust him. That's our our message this morning. So we'll, we'll see the place of trust validated, the depth of trust tested, and the reason for trust earned. Trust validated, trust tested, and trust earned. That's our outline this morning. So let's look at point one, the place of trust validated. Our, our chapter begins with the story of John the Baptist's death. It really is a sordid tale um, that foreshadows the kind of death that Jesus would die. John was alone. He was falsely imprisoned. He had a Roman governor uh, execute him when he really shouldn't have. A Roman governor, if he had had any sort of... Uh, uh, Standing up for what's right, he would have never done that. He was full of cowardice and self-preservation. And really, he was, he was t- uh, crucified for the power of his, his testimony and his witness. And it really is a foreshadowing of how Jesus himself would die. And Jesus, of course, had not yet revealed to his disciples how he was going to die. That hadn't happened yet. He, he says that a little later. But I'm sure that when Jesus heard this news, he was thinking about his own death. Where we are sort of in the timeline of of Jesus' kind of three-year public ministry is we're about a year from the Passover when Jesus goes to die on the cross. So that's about a year out. And I think that Jesus knows that the timing is probably something like that. And so it says that after he hears about his death, it says that when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But the crowds... The crowds who were following Jesus, they were kind of like toddlers with their parents. They weren't giving Jesus any alone time, okay? They were going to go wherever and sort of bug Jesus wherever he was. So they heard he was in their area and they followed him. And it's really not that surprising, right? Everywhere Jesus went, he healed people. And if you have to think about it, in a day when, um, you know, certainly they had medicine, Luke, the, the person who wrote uh, Luke's gospel, he was a doctor, but when we think about a doctor and the medicine that they practiced 2,000 years ago is much more uh, rudimentary than what we have today. We understand much more about medicine. So when you have this man kind of walking around and, and healing people, not just of you know, a simple illness, but of things like paralysis and blindness and deafness and leprosy, he's going to generate a significant following. But the people didn't just mob Jesus because he could heal, right? There was more to it than that. I think there were some people there that, well, I know that there were some people there. John's gospel in chapter 6 tells us the fact that they wanted to make Jesus king, and he escaped. He didn't really, he wasn't ready for that yet. And he knew that that's why he wasn't there. He knew that's why the Father hadn't sent him, at least not yet. But there were others who I think knew that Jesus was there for more than just physical healing. And think about when, you remember the four friends who lowered their paralytic friend through the roof. Okay, what does Jesus say when he sees that man? He compliments the friends on their faith. But what is the first thing he says to that young man? He says, take up your bat and walk. No, that's not the first thing he says. He's actually not as concerned. Jesus is not as concerned about that young man's physical health. He's far more concerned about his spiritual health. And what's the first thing that Jesus says to him, he says? Son, your sins are forgiven. 
So the crowds knew that Jesus was at least a prophet, maybe even the Messiah, the chosen one of God, that God had promised to deliver Israel back to national prominence. We're going to be an important nation again with this deliverer. And maybe that deliverer is Jesus. So as they came to him again, he kind of, if you will, he teed up another miracle to show he was more than a political deliverer. Now, it says that they were in a desolate place. And they were near the Sea of Galilee, and it really was a remote place. There was no food nearby. And so the disciples, and I, I just, I don't know about you, but when I read this, sometimes I feel like the disciples just get made out to be like they're, you know, totally out to lunch. But I think if I was a disciple, I'd probably be saying the same exact things they are. And so they're earthy, like you and me. And, and sometimes they're kind of very earthly-minded. And so they say to Jesus, hey, it's getting late. You've been... You've been healing all these people. You need to tell them, Jesus, to go away. Go get some food. And then Jesus says something that's really interesting to them. He says, you give them something to eat. You give them something to eat. Now, the disciples are confused. There are 5,000 men here. Now, and depending on who you read, they have different interpretations on the total number. But certainly, there were some men, and uh, excuse me, there were also women and children there as well. So if there was a, a woman and a child for every man, you're at 15,000. Maybe it's a, a woman and a child for every other man, so you're at 10,000. I'm guessing it's probably between 10 and 15,000 people that are there uh, to follow Jesus, to hear what he says, to be healed. And so to feed 10,000 people, it would cost the disciples and another thing. They say it cost at least 200 denarii. Now, to put that in today's dollars, that was about... Uh, four-fifths, or excuse me, two-thirds of a year's wages. So if you make $20 an hour in Denver and you work 40 hours a week for 52 weeks out of the year, you make $41,000 a year. So let's just say that's what a full year's wages would be. So if we take two-thirds of that, we're at about $27,000, $28,000. So they're looking at Jesus saying, you want us to come up with $27,000 worth of food for these folks? They discussed that idea amongst themselves, but then they pointed to this boy over here. Well, here's this boy with us. He's got five loaves and two fish. And I think this is what Jesus was getting to with them, right? This, is, this was actually, he's, they're starting to get the point he's trying to make with them. You see, when Jesus said, you give them something to eat, it might feel like he's saying, figure it out, disciples. You guys, you go figure it out, Okay. But the thrust here is Jesus, this is the thrust, this is an important point, we're going to touch on it again in a minute. The thrust here is he's inviting the disciples into his kingdom work. It, how easy would it have been for Jesus to say, yeah, I got this, bring me the, the loaves and the fish and, you know, I think there's a little boy over here, I know he's got some stuff, let me just, I got it. That's not what he did. You give them something to eat. Participate in my kingdom work. And so Jesus orders them to have the people gather into groups of about 50. He took the loaves and the fish and he said a blessing and then he broke the loaves and he gave them the loaves to the disciples and they passed them out amongst the crowds. And something miraculous happens between verses 19 and 20. As the baskets of bread and fish make their way from group to group, they're just like refilled somehow, miraculously. They just, each time somebody reaches their hand in the basket, there's more there. There's more there. There's enough for everyone. Now, 
Let me put this in context for you. So five loaves and two fish were enough food for about two people. That's why this little boy had five loaves and two fish. That was enough food for about two people. Now, while these loaves may have been wonderful because of what Jesus did to them, they were not Wonder Bread loaves, okay? Right? These are not loaves in the sense of like we can slice it up and you know, feed you know, 10 people with them. These are more like dinner rolls, okay? So we're talking about like five dinner rolls and a little bit of fish. So that's about two people. There's 5,000 men. Let's say there's 10,000 people total. So this is a significant miracle. I mean, for those of us that have been around this stuff for a long time, it's like, yeah, okay, yeah, yeah, Jesus. Of course I know that miracle. I could, I've heard it since, you know, before I could even read and write. This is a significant miracle. Think about this. I work in finance, and we talk sometimes about return on investment, okay? So if you double your investment, that's a 1x or a 1 times return on your investment, Maybe, if you're really good and you time it just right, and frankly, if you get a little lucky, if you'll allow me that term, you could get a 10x return. Jesus just got a 5,000x return on his investment. He might be the best portfolio manager ever. And so you see that it says in the scripture, they all ate and were satisfied. And, and that's not satisfied like, you know, I could eat more, but I'm good. I'm kind of trying to like watch my carb intake. No, this is, I just finished Thanksgiving meal and I can't eat anymore kind of stuffed. And after that, after everyone was that full, there were still 12 baskets. Now, I don't want you to think these are baskets like Little Red Riding Hood baskets. These, are ma- these were large, heavy baskets. At a large, heavy container. So there was plenty of food for tomorrow's lunch. They were covered. Now, as I mentioned, this is the only miracle outside of the resurrection that each of the four Gospels records. So that's pretty, that's really significant. So let's dive in then. What does this mean? What does this miracle tell us? Number one, Jesus knows our need. It says that he had compassion when he saw the crowds coming to him that he had compassion on them. Now, I want you to think about something right here. Remember, he, he had found out about John's death. Now, depending on who you read, some commentators say maybe he just found out. Others say, well, he probably found out some time ago, but this was his first opportunity to really get alone. And remember what Jesus did? The, the thing that he does when he really wants to connect with the Father is he goes and he prays. He gets alone. Often it's up to the mountaintop on his own to pray. But what happens on his way? The crowds interrupt him. Jesus, heal us. Jesus, do more miracles. And what does Jesus do? He's moved in his innards. He has compassion at the very gut level of who he is. He completely sets aside his agenda. And he puts the agenda of these people before his own. That's compassion. He knows our need. Not only does he know our need, he gives us what we need. His compassion moves him to actual acts of mercy. It's one thing to say, you know, as James says in uh, James chapter 1, is the, or James chapter 2, the, the rich man says to the poor man, be warmed and filled. But then he doesn't do anything for that poor man. Jesus says, be warmed and filled. Then he gives you a blanket and some fish and some bread to eat. 
That's who Jesus is. He's moved to, to acts of mercy. But what he gives us is more than just that. He gives us himself, and that is what we need most. We need Jesus the most. Now, remember in the wilderness, as the Israelites were wandering around the, 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 the wilderness between Egypt and the Promised Land for 40 years, you think, remember God's provision and leading for them, right? He led them with a, a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire at night, and every morning they would go out and collect the manna. But the manna was only good enough for that day, right? If they tried to store the manna overnight, it would be spoiled and nasty, so here in this desolate wilderness, the people come to Jesus looking for leading and healing and provision, and he gives them that, right? He gives them healing. He leads them. He provides for them. But it's more than that. He's actually pointing to himself. We read in John 6, it's John's account of this miracle, that he teaches his followers about what they need most. See, they had, he had done this miracle He'd gone out to the disciples on the boat. He'd come back in. The crowds found him again, and they want him to feed them again, to heal them again. And this is what he says to them. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. Of course, he's speaking of himself. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life. He gives life to the world. And they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. We don't want to have to be hungry. And this is what he says in response to that. Jesus said to them, I, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So with this miracle, Jesus validates himself as not just an amazing prophet or a great teacher or even the Savior of the nation of Israel, but as the new manna from heaven, the one who gives life eternal, and the one who is worthy of our trust. So we see trust validated with his miracle of the feeding of the 5,000. But as we move to the second point in our outlines, there's a depth of trust that will be tested, as we see with this next miracle. I'd invite you to, uh, if you haven't, go ahead and open your Bible at this point. And uh, I want to read, just read for you from Matthew, verses 22 through 33. We're just going to read the whole account of Jesus walking on the water and what happens. Now, as we read this, I want you to put yourself in the boat, okay? Immediately, he made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while, while he dismissed the crowds. And after he had dismissed the crowds... He went up on the mountain by himself to pray. When evening came, he was there alone, but, by the, but the boat by this time was a long way from the land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. And in the fourth watch of the night, he came to them, walking on the sea. But when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were terrified and said, It is a ghost! And they cried out in fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Take heart. It is I, do not be afraid. And Peter answered him, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. And he said, come. So Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water and came to Jesus. But when he saw the wind and was afraid and began to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. 
Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, O you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got to the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. So after Jesus fed the 5,000, he finally got that alone time that he was looking for with the Father. And so he sent the disciples off on a boat, he dismissed the crowds, and he went up on the mountain by himself to pray. Now, we are a hurried and busy group of people. Now, I do think sometimes when you ask somebody how things are going, the standard answer is busy. And I think sometimes that's um, said as maybe like a, to, to give people a sense that you're important and you have a lot of things going on in your life and you're just so busy. Um, I think also sometimes people really are very busy. And that's an honest answer. But we, uh, we're one, not only are busy, we don't like to be alone without distraction. I mean, especially, I don't have my phone with me, but I le always leave it down there so it doesn't distract me while I'm preaching. Um, we always have our phones with us, right? Ah, oh, man, I'm a little bored. Pull my phone out, check the headlines, see what's going on. But it seems like whenever Jesus needed to really connect with the Father, he went up to the mountain alone to pray. Now, I tried to do this last fall. I set aside a day. Where I, was, I mean, I literally put the day on my calendar at work, blocked the thing off, PTO, the whole thing. I was going to go up to the mountains. I was, gonna leave, I was even going to leave my radio off on the drive up. I was going to leave my phone in the car, and I was just going to have my Bible and a journal, maybe some prayer requests. And about a week out, week and a half out, I started to think about how that day would go. <laughs> what would I do? How would I keep my mind occupied? I decided perhaps a half day is really all that's necessary for this kind of silence and solitude. And then a few days out, I chickened out altogether. It was just the honest truth. But I'm reminded of that opportunity that I missed and wondering if taking time alone to be with God, his word, a pen, some paper, and a prayer request list would be good for all of us. It doesn't have to be a whole day. In fact, the more I thought about it, it's kind of like saying, for somebody that's never, that hasn't worked out in a long time, they haven't gone for a run in 20 years, and they decide, you know, I'm going to go out and run five miles. You're going to die. It's the, same, it's the same thing here. If you decide, I'm going to spend a whole day alone in silence and solitude with the Lord, and it's going to be great. Man, you need to build up to it. Spend an hour, then two, then maybe a half day. So I think this is a pretty important thing for us to do. Apparently, and I, here's why, <laughs> Jesus felt the need to be alone with the Father, and he was more filled with the Holy Spirit than we'll ever be. He's more perfect than we'll ever be. He's more self-sufficient than we'll ever be. In our weakness and sin, in an age of continual stimulation and distraction, there may be no greater need for our walk with God than the occasional times of silence and solitude. So anyhow, when he's on the mountain by himself, he wasn't, another point here, he wasn't only thinking of himself. I think it's safe to say he asked the Father for strength in the face of his coming persecution, right? He knows that his hour is about a year away. But he wasn't only praying for himself. There's no doubt that he sent his disciples ahead to test them. And as he sent them ahead, he also prayed for them and, and prayed for their protection from the waves. He was interceding for them because he loves them. And meanwhile, you know, maybe you've heard this, uh, this saying, uh, somebody has said to you, man, I'm really on the struggle bus right now. I'm really, things are really hard. I'm struggling. I'm on the struggle bus. Well, the disciples are on the struggle boat. 
It's somewhere between 3 a.m. and 6 p.m., and they've been rowing for what feels like forever, okay? Jesus probably sent them out at about 9 p.m., maybe 8 p.m., somewhere in that time slot, six, seven, eight, nine hours rowing. It says there are about 50 stadia from the shore, which, in, uh, which would equate to about three to four miles. So they're pretty good ways out there. And, the, and the, the, the wind is just absolutely bashing the boat. They may be thinking, this is it. This is the end. We're not going to make it out of this. But this is when Jesus does some Jesus stuff. He came walking to them on the water. Now, two things here about Jesus walking on the water. Number one, remember he made the water. He thought up H2O. He designed it. He drew it up. So if he wanted to walk on the water, by changing the physical attributes of the water under each of his feet into something like solid rock, but with the fluidity and physical appearance of water, he could do that. He's not bound by our laws of physics. Or he could have simply made his body weightless. Or he just decided to levitate and walk on air with his feet touching the water. I don't think it matters. <laughs> it's an expression of his deity and sovereignty that he walks on the water, however he did it. Now, here's the other thing I want you to think about is Jesus walks on this water. This wasn't just like a pond, not that it makes any difference. Walking on water is walking on water, but this water was tumultuous. These seas were tossed and turned, right? And for the Jews, the seas represented chaos, the deep, the unknown, the uncontrollable. But we see Jesus exerting his sovereignty over the deep by walking upon it. Even in the midst of their chaotic situation, Jesus is in control. But when the disciples saw him, they thought he was a ghost, right? Now, one commentator speculated that maybe they thought they were already dead or maybe somebody from Sheol was coming up to get them, to take them down to Sheol. Or maybe it's as simple as this. People don't walk on water. Physical beings don't walk on So this must be a ghost or an apparition of some sort, right? So they were distressed when the boat, they had already been distressed when the boat was buffeted by the waves. And it says, the, the scriptures say, now they were terrified. The dread of their fate washed over them. When someone called out, it is a ghost, and they all cried out in fear. But Jesus did some Jesus stuff again. He said, take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. Now, Jesus said, it is I. When somebody asks me, who are you? I say, I'm Ben Lewis. I don't answer, it is I. <laughs> but Jesus says, it is I. Because who else could it be? We are reminded of another scene in which Moses asks God who he is. God says, I am that I am. And that's no mistake. Just like Jesus used the miracle of the 5,000 to show his deity, he knew what he was doing when he said, it is I. Now, the next part of this story to me is kind of peculiar. Why did Peter ask Jesus to tell him to get out of the boat and walk? When little boys have a clubhouse, you got to know the password to get into the clubhouse. you got to be verified, right? You can't just get in. You need to authenticate yourself. And that's what Peter is doing. If it is you, Jesus, command me to get out of the boat and walk on the water. Jesus simply says, come. So Peter gets out and starts walking in the water like Jesus. Now, can you imagine this scene? 
This is one of the moments where I think if you've been a Christian for a long time, that can actually kind of work against you a little bit. Maybe you've known this story, like I said earlier, before you could even read and write, which is great. Praise God for that, right? But you can come to think of the outrageous. This is outrageous. You can start to think of the outrageous as normal. Brothers and sisters, this is anything but normal. Now put yourself in Matthew's shoes. He's our, he's our writer here. He's about to die. Then an apparition comes to them walking on the water. As the apparition gets closer, he appears to be Jesus, and he sounds like Jesus. Then Peter, being the bold and passionate leader that he is, takes action. It gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water too. When Peter gets out of the boat and starts walking, he enters a new phase of his relationship with Jesus. It's a new level of trust. He's really participating with Jesus in this miracle and in his work. Jesus passed the authentication test, and Peter is passing the trust test. But alas, it doesn't last long. Peter gets distracted by the wind and the waves. Um, you might have as well. I know I probably would have. After all, we're defying the laws of physics by walking on water. He loses his focus and starts to sink. But at that moment, he does the very best thing he could do. He cries out to the Lord for help. Lord, save me. Brothers and sisters, when you are in trouble, that is the very best thing that you can do. Don't try to fix it on your own. Cry out, Jesus, I need your help just like Peter did here. So Jesus gets into the boat. The wind stops. The sea's calm. It's not the first time that he calms the seas. I mean, it's just kind of routine for Jesus. And they worship Jesus, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. This is the first time in Matthew's Gospel that his disciples call him the Son of God. Before this, he was called the Son of David which has significant messianic meaning. It's very important, for sure. But the Son of God was a new term for the disciples to use. What they saw went beyond what they expected out of a national hero and deliverer. So this is trust tested. And now let's look at point three, trust earned, or even the, the reason for trust earned. So Jesus tested Peter's trust. And Peter began well by getting out of the boat and finished well by crying out to Jesus for help. The middle wasn't the best. What happened? He got distracted. He took his eyes off Christ and looked down at his circumstances. When Jesus said to Peter, come, he didn't change their circumstances. The seas were raging and they were on water. But he called Peter out to himself nevertheless. And Peter did the most important thing. He got out of the boat and went to Jesus. When Jesus says to us, come, he doesn't promise to change our circumstances, but he does promise to change us. And he promises us life. Remember, he calls himself the bread of life. He promises life more fulfilling than our friends, more fulfilling than our spouses, more fulfilling than our work, than our family, than our church, than our hobbies, than our money, than our good health, than our appearance. He promises abundant life in him. So why don't we trust him? 
Why don't we trust him? Now, at the beginning of the sermon, you'll note that I located the reason for mistrust outside of ourselves. I blamed others. We'd been mistreated, misused. People had broken our trust, and so that's why. That's why we don't trust like we should. But there's also reasons, I think, in our own heart why we don't trust. Sometimes we think we know better. Sometimes we are very close-fisted. We don't want to give up what we have. We like to be in control. We are afraid of what it will be like, the sacrifice, the toil. Why should we trust? So why should we trust? I think it starts with Jesus' track record. He has, we talk about people's track records, back to an investment analogy. You know, they always say, you know, past performance is no indicator of future performance, but you always look, what's the previous track record been, those kinds of things. Jesus' track record is perfect. A huge crowd was watching a, the famous tightrope walker Blondin cross the Niagara Falls one day in 1860. He had crossed it numerous times. It was about 1,000 feet across the Niagara Falls. Above, if you've ever, 160 feet above these raging waters. If you've ever been there, it's, it's frightening, honestly. The power of it is, is astounding. He not only walked across this tightrope numerous times, he also pushed a wheelbarrow across it. Now, one little boy just stared in amazement. So after completing and crossing, the fellow looked at that little boy and he said, do you believe that I could take a person across in the wheelbarrow without falling? Yes, sir, I really do. The fellow says, well, then get in, son. And it's the same thing that Jesus is asking us, except I think we've got a much better track record than this guy. Now, of course, the ultimate reason that we can trust Christ with our lives, with everything that we have, is the cross. The ultimate source of our hope, the place where he has more than validated our trust, but has in fact earned the full right to our trust, is at the cross. The cross is where he has earned the right to call us out of the boat and into the abundant life with him. You see, at the cross... He demonstrated what full and complete trust looks like himself. He completely entrusted himself to the Father. Like John the Baptist's death foreshadowed, he was alone and tormented. He died at the hands of a pagan ruler more concerned with political expediency than doing the right thing. He was whipped, mocked, beaten. And he was made, think about this, he was made to carry the same piece of wood upon which he would be nailed, made to carry his own torture device. But that actually misses the deeper meaning of what happened at the cross. Certainly, that's, a, that's a, an outward, in a sense, kind of worldly representation of the suffering that Jesus took at the cross. But there's something much more cosmic happening at the cross. More painful than this, deeper to his core than anything else, was the feeling of being forsaken by the Father. The same Father who he would go to, to be alone with on the mountaintop. That same person, that same father, was not only distant from him, but opposed to him. Now, why was he opposed to him? 
because God had put onto Jesus all of our sin, your sin and my sin, your rebellion and my rebellion. And he punished that sin and rebellion. He poured out his wrath on that sin and rebellion. And here's the amazing thing. Jesus came through to the other side. He died, but he didn't stay dead. He was raised up from the dead and left an empty tomb. His death and resurrection are the reason. They are the reason that he has earned the right to our trust. So what next? Get out of the boat. Trust Christ. He has three invitations here, I think, in our passage this morning. And they are an invitation to community, kingdom community, an invitation to kingdom work, and an invitation to kingdom life. The invitation to kingdom community, think about the multitude that he fed. 10,000 people or so, right? A, a, A feast that in a lot of ways foreshadowed a messianic feast that Jesus references multiple times throughout the Gospels, a feast that he was looking to where forward to where people from every time, every tribe, every nation, every tongue would gather around a feast of community, a feast of of unity. The meaning of this, Grant Osborne puts it this way, the meaning of table fellowship is unity and community. Meals symbolized friendship, intimacy, and unity, involving reconciliation and making a person part of one's extended family. That is, they were social, religious, and economic equals. So in providing this meal for the crowds, Jesus is inviting them in to become part of his new family of kingdom people and promising those who respond that he will provide for their needs. This is an invitation to kingdom community. I will tell you too, brothers and sisters, that I, in the past, I have not necessarily pounded the table, or in this case the pulpit, very often, or really ever as it relates to home groups. But I am becoming more and more convicted with time. And as I have shepherded this church now for, along with the other brothers for a little over seven years, I'm becoming more and more convicted of the need for home groups in your life. If you're not in a home group, you're missing out. Because something is going to happen in your life where you're going to need a network to help you. We see it all the time. You're going to need a network, a group of people in your life when you have a huge life decision to make. Should I go to this college? Should I marry this person? Should I take this job opportunity? Should I go to the mission field? What do I do at the office when they want me to put the pronouns? I'm obviously a man. Do I really need to put my pronouns behind my name? You need a community of people to help you walk this walk of life. And if you're not in a home group, you're missing out. Full stop. So that's the invitation to kingdom community. There's also an invitation to kingdom work. Think about this. Jesus, he invites these disciples in. You give them something to eat. Now, he probably said it much nicer than that. You give them something to eat. Like the disciples and the feeding of the 5,000. You know, he, he, you give them something. He wanted them to do the work. As I said earlier, he could have done it himself, but that's not what he chose to do. And it's an invitation for us to participate in his kingdom work. He's building, and he wants us to join him in that building alongside him. 
And there are plenty of opportunities to do that here. There are plenty of opportunities to do that outside of our church. Alternatives pregnancy is a great example of an opportunity outside of this church. And it's an invitation to kingdom life, to trust him in his sovereignty and trust him that he is who he says he is, the great I am. It's an invitation to trust your own identity in him. Well, I'm a, you know, Ben Lewis, I'm a worker, I'm a husband, I'm a dad, play golf, like the Ohio State Buckeyes, but where's my real identity? Where's my real identity? It's an opportunity to trust our identity with him. And then finally, a trust that he can use you. Brothers and sisters, if he used Moses, who apparently had a speech impediment of some sort to lead the Israelites out of Egypt, he can use you. He can use you and he can use me. Author Tim Hansel shares his experience of getting out of the boat. At first, I saw God as my observer, my judge, keeping track of things I did wrong so as to know whether I merited heaven or hell when I die. He was sort of there like a president. But later on, when I met Christ, it seemed as though life were rather like a bike ride. But it was a tandem bike. I noticed that Christ was in the back helping me pedal along. I don't know just when that it was that he suggested I love that he says that. He suggested that we change places, but life has not been the same since. When I had control, I knew the way. It was rather boring, but predictable. It was the shortest distance between two points. But when he took the lead, he knew delightful long cuts. Up mountains and through rocky places at breakneck speeds, it was all I could do to hang on. Even though it looked like madness, he said, pedal! I worried and was anxious and asked, where are you taking me? He laughed and didn't answer, and I started learning to trust. I forgot my boring life and entered into the adventure. And when I'd say, I'm scared, he'd lean back and touch my hand. He took me to people with gifts that I needed, gifts of healing, acceptance, and joy. They gave me gifts to take on my journey, my Lord's and mine. And we were off again. He said, give the gifts away. They're extra baggage, too much weight. So I did, to the people we met, and I found that in giving I received, and still our burden was light. I did not trust him at first in control of my life. I thought he'd wreck it, but he knows bike secrets. I love that. He knows bike secrets. He knows how to make it bend to take sharp corners. He knows how to jump to clear high rocks. He knows how to fly to short and scary passages. And I'm learning to be quiet and pedal in the strangest places and I'm beginning to enjoy the view and the cool breeze on my face with my delightful, constant companion, Jesus Christ. And when I'm sure I just can't do it anymore, he smiles and says, pedal. Please stand with me and pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us this day, and um, Lord, we know how trustworthy you are, and yet we find it so hard uh, often to, to trust you as well as we should with everything in our life. Lord, help us to start to, to start to take those small steps of faith in you, to trust you for 
our schedule, to trust you for even just an afternoon, to not schedule it, to see what you might have for us. Father, to trust you with our relationships, to trust you with our jobs, to trust you with our finances. Lord, we, we, uh, we know that uh, you are so tr- trustworthy because of what you've done for us, the love that you showed us on the cross. We thank you for that love. Help us to trust you more and send us on our way. In Jesus' name, amen.